Great. Well, we're going to now read God's Word together. Um, so please do turn to Esther chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. The whole chapter, we'll read it just now. Um, that's on page 413 of the Black uh, Church Bibles that you will have found on your seats. Continuing in Esther's story, she has just agreed to help Mordecai and the Jewish people, her people, at great cost, potentially, to herself. Let's read together. Esther chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast." This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Amen. We are continuing our reading in Esther. Um, so this time we'll be reading from chapter 6, verse 1, till chapter 8, verse 2. Um, and this, again, could be found on page 413 of your church Bibles. On that night, the king could not sleep. 
and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Heman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, that royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let those robes and the horse be handed over to, the, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Asuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, the wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. 
But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Habona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Asuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Amen. Thank you, Candice, for reading for us, and David for reading before that. It's quite a story, isn't it? And we're going to look at that together uh, in just a moment. I'd encourage you to have the Bible open. I know we always say that, and we think it's important to do at any point because um, we want to see what God's Word says rather than just what I say. Um, So we encourage you to do that. But it's particularly helpful when we have a long passage like that because we're going to track our way through the story, and uh, it'd be really good if you can see what verses I'm talking about uh, as we turn over the pages. Now, shall I pray as we, uh, as we look at this together? Lord God, our Father, we thank you once again for the gift of your word to us. We know that uh, in your words uh, we have the message of life because it speaks about your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so we pray this evening as we look at this part of your word, uh, we would see your great purposes We'd see your salvation that you have planned uh, through your Son, the Lord Jesus, and we would worship you in response. Help me as I speak by your Spirit too, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's an episode of The Simpsons where Bart returns home from scout camp and Homer mocks him, as he often does. In his normal way, he asks, How was jerk practice, boy? Did they teach you how to sing to trees and build rubbish furniture out of useless wooden logs? And then the chair that Homer's sitting in breaks and he cries out, Dolt, stupid poetic justice. So we love stories of poetic justice where the tables are turned on the last minute on the evil character, where they get their just desserts. And cartoons particularly love this stuff. Think of the Roadrunner cartoons where the trap that Wile E. Coyote sets Uh, backfires on him and he ends up in it. Or if you're more cultured uh, than I am, uh, it's it's often a great literary device. In Hamlet, uh, Shakespeare coined the phrase to be hoisted with one's own petard. I had to look up what that means, um, but I'm going to try and get it into more conversations. A petard is a a bomb, um, and it was set off by a length of fuse, and Occasionally, what a bomber would do is they'd accidentally cut the fuse too short to be able to get away, 
before blowing themselves up. You are hoisted into the air by your own bomb. And Hamlet, in the story, he longs that the man who engineered his father's death would meet his comeuppance in the same way. We love stories like this. And Esther, chapter 5 to 7, the climax of the whole book, is this kind of story. Here we find a story of divine poetic justice where the characters get what they deserve. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is hoisted by his own petard. But let's, um, that's getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back a bit, uh, way back into chapter 4. So you remember that our story is set in Susa, the city, the capital of the Persian Empire. And the first character that we meet is the great Persian king Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, if you want his Greek name. Uh, If you've ever watched the film The 300, he's the guy uh, from that. The Jews are exiles in his kingdom, and uh, they're in a position of great danger. Ahasuerus, who was was persuaded by his prime minister, this guy Haman, who's an archenemy of the Jews, to issue an edict that in a year's time, all the Jewish people throughout the empire will be, in the words of the edict, destroyed, killed, annihilated from the face of the earth. It's a genocide. And Haman did this because he'd always hated the Jews, But now he's been triggered by one man, a guy called Mordecai, a Jewish man, who refuses to bow to Haman's authority. Since chapter 3, the sentence of death has hung over this Jewish people like a dark cloud. And at this point, that fate seems inevitable. The forces against them are so powerful and they are so weak, except that there is one sliver of hope. Esther, a Jewish teenage girl and Mordecai's cousin. And she just so happens to win a contest and is placed in a powerful position as queen. And it could just be that she might be able to do something about this terrible situation. This is where we left things last week at the end of chapter 4. Mordecai has challenged her to go to the king and to plead for mercy on behalf of her people. But there's a problem. At first, Esther's hesitant because she knows that she can't approach the king without permission. To enter his presence is to risk death, unless he extends his scepter towards her. And so what Esther does, she calls her people to fast, and she fasts herself for three days... And then she says she will go in and risk her life to approach the king. And that's the tension at the end of chapter 4. Now we enter chapter 5, verse 1, and uh, on the back of the service sheet, uh, there's just the flow of the story for us. Chapter 5, verse 1 to 14. Beginning of verse 1. On the third day, so after the fasting... Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight. 
And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And we breathe a big sigh of relief. Stage one complete. She's approached the king, and he's accepted her approach. And he's made a great offer to us. And it's at this point that we expect her request to, that the Jews be spared this genocide uh, to be made. But she doesn't do it. Instead, she asks the king, with his prime minister, to come to a party, a great feast that she's prepared. And they do. And again, the king offers her anything she wants, verse 6. And again, we expect her to take the chance to plead the case for her people. And again, she doesn't. Now, some people think that this is a kind of purposeful tactic on her behalf, that she's sort of softening uh, the king up. I'm not sure about that. I wonder, perhaps, if it's more likely that she just chokes. After all, see, her people have been fasting for three days, so has she. And when the opportunity comes, and twice she has the opportunity, she fails to take it. I mean, it's totally understandable. I'm sure we would do the same. But we're about to see in the story that that delay has serious consequences. The bad situation is about to get worse. Chapter 5, verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Haman then goes home to his wife and his mates and he, and he brags, about them how, about how, brags to them about how well he's doing at court and the fact that the queen's invited him to these banquets. But he can't enjoy any of it because of this one stone in his shoe, Mordecai. Verse 13. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gates. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a, gal let, uh, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. See, Haman sets up this gallows, and it's, it's not a hangman's noose like the ones that we're sort of used to thinking of. It's a, it's a huge sharpened pole. That's the way they did it in those days. Uh, back in, in his back garden, he sets up this huge pole, and he, he plans to impale Mordecai on it. So now, not only are the Jews threatened as a whole, but Esther's failed to make her case, and now Mordecai is going to be on the sharp end of the stick. See, things are getting worse. But just listen to Mordecai's words to Esther from the chapter before, just as she prepared to go into the throne room. 
Chapter 4, verse 14, this is what he said to her. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now, when we read that last week, it felt a bit like a kind of strange thing for him to say. Because were there really anyone else that could have helped? Was there anyone in a better place to help than Esther? Who did Mordecai have in mind when he said that? Yeah, look at chapter 6, verse 1. Here we see that deliverance does indeed come from another place. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honour or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. See, here in these three verses, everything changes. It really is the hinge point of the story of the whole book. And it's here that we see most clearly the great theme of the book of Esther. Just look. It just so happens that that night the king couldn't sleep. That's it. That's the moment that everything changes. The king could not sleep. Such a small thing. But it just so happens that when the king cannot sleep, that the king calls for a book. And it just so happens that the book that he needs is a special one, and he turns to the right page that records when Mordecai, the one who's threatened at that very moment saved his life from assassination. The king's forgotten about this account. Perhaps we did as well. It was way back in chapter 2. And the king had never done anything to honour the man who has saved him and now desires to do so. See, isn't it striking? It's just as Mordecai said to Esther, if you keep silence at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It looked so much like things were out of control, that the enemies of God and his people were in the ascendancy, that that the Jews had been forgotten about, that, that those who could do something to help were either under threat like Mordecai or they were hesitant like Esther. But now we know that things were never out of control at all. For it's here that we see most clearly the hidden hand of the providence of God. Behind the scene, God is at work to save his people, to save his exiled people who have largely forgotten about him, who are weak, who are fearful, and who are sinful. And he had said that he would do just that. Listen to these words of the Lord from Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus is a book of laws, really. It spells out how God's people should live. But towards the end of the book, God begins to say, look, you're not going to live according to these laws. You're going to forget about me. 
This is what he says, Leviticus 26, verse 44. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. This is such a huge lesson for us to learn from this book, that although all may seem lost, that though the church may seem small and weak and fearful, that although the people of God may have been lacking in faith and courage, God does not forget the covenant he has made with them. He loves them still, and he is at work behind the scene in his strange providence sometimes to rescue them. He can even keep an emperor up at night with indigestion in order to, solve, to save his people. And that is what happens. So let's turn to the resolution of events in chapter 6, verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 4, providence continues. It just so happens that the point where the king is asking how to honour Mordecai, that his enemy Haman walks in. And Haman mistakenly thinks that the king's going to honour him instead of Mordecai. And so he suggests this great parade, and, and, he, and he suggests that the king might want to honour this man, um, this person right at the centre of it, and he should be dressed in the king's clothes, and he should wear the king's crown, and he should sit on the king's horse. And Haman's well chuffed at that point. See, all his hard work, it's finally being recognised. Finally, the recognition I deserve, he thinks. And the king takes his advice, but then in delicious irony, he reveals that it's actually Mordecai that he wants to honour. And he makes Haman act as Mordecai's servant. It's a great turning of the tables. Mordecai is honoured, Haman is humiliated. Let's read chapter 6, verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh, and uh, his, sorry, uh, Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now, wives can sometimes be a little bit unhelpful, can't they? She just sort of kicks him while he's down, you know. You're never going to win, you know. Where was she, like, chapter before, when she mentioned that great plan she had? So they've suddenly changed their minds. They've been convinced, as they've realised, that you can't fight God. 
Now, it's just at this point when Haman must be thinking that things can't get any worse than this, surely, that he's rushed off to the next and final banquet. So the events are sort of spinning out of control for him. But then in this rollercoaster of a story, the pressure kind of eases. Chapter 7, verse 1 and verse 2, a feast begins again, and it lasts a couple of days. The king and Haman, they've been a whole day at this great feast, and, and so far everything seems to be back on track. Maybe Haman started to calm down, just to relax a little. Started to realise that he's still the king's favourite after all, and, and after all, Mordecai is going to get what's coming to him when this edict eventually uh, happens that's against the Jews. But despite this brief respite, Haman's no longer in control of events. Esther, perhaps emboldened by this public humiliation of Haman, is about to walk a fine line. She's about to make her accusation against Haman, but at the same time not accuse the king of doing the same thing. And she does it masterfully. Once again, the king's grand gesture of generosity is made, a whole offer of half the kingdom, verse 2. And then the big moment arrives. And things are really on a knife edge in the story. They could go either way. So palms sweaty, mouth dry, butterflies in her stomach. Esther begins to make her case against the threat of extinction against her and her people. If I found favour in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. It's very well done. You know, if I found favour and if it pleases, very different language of respect. And skillfully, she starts by showing him that it's an attack against her, his queen, first of all, and his wife before she then broadens it out to include the Jewish people. And here, for the first time, she comes out of the closet as one of God's people. Do you notice that? Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. She's hidden her Jewishness until now. Finally, she wins him over by boosting his importance, verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So putting it this way, she indicates that she's submissive to him. She's seeking not to bother him with trivial matters, but that this is so serious she has to act. In short, she persuades the king to act as her hero to rescue her. And in doing so, she persuades him to rescue her people too. But now things are about to explode. Some unnamed assailant has plotted and mounted an attack against his wife. Who would have the nerve to do such a thing? He needs to know, and he needs to know now, verse 5. Then King Aswara said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And we know, don't we, that the culprit's in the room, verse 6. And Esther said, A foe and an enemy. 
this wicked Haman. You kind of imagine the colour draining from Haman's face as he sort of shrinks back from the wrath of the king and the queen. He sees in an instant that the king's sided with the queen, that they stand together against him, and he knows the game's up, that the writing's on the wall, that his wife's unwanted prophecy has come true. He's come to ruin, and he's terrified. The king needs some air. Storms out of the room in a rage, and Haman panics, and he, and he kind of knows that his fate's sealed, and the king's going to have his head, and so he, he sort of does what comes naturally, I guess. He throws himself down at Esther's feet, and he begs for mercy, and Esther's lying on her couch at the banquet table, and Haman, not really thinking what he's doing, I suppose, he falls upon her, and that's a big mistake. It's a massive breach of royal etiquette. You weren't allowed to come within seven steps of someone in the king's harem, and it really seals his fate. The king returns, and in a cloud of rage, he sees a distortion in his mind. He doesn't see a plea for mercy. He sees an assault on his queen, and that's Haman's doom. What follows is the ultimate poetic justice. There's this guy, Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, and he has a bright idea. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman's prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king says, hang him on that. I'm sure Haman's really thankful for this guy, Harbona. You know, there's, there's this large pointy stick. It's set up in Haman's garden. Oh, by the way, he, he had it made to impale the guy who you've just honoured, the one who saved your life. It's pretty sly, really. But the king loves the idea, and Haman's original plan comes back to bite him on the backside, so to speak. In the end, Haman meets his doom And it's a gruesome death in public shame. He's suspended on display for the whole city to witness. And justice has been done. He gets what he deserves. But we should be wary, I think, of taking delight in that. We know, don't we, that what's even worse than his gruesome death is that he will awake to face a king whose wrath is infinitely more terrifying than Ahasuerus and whose judgment is far more dreadful. We can't delight in his death. But in our story, the enemy of the Jews is dead and Mordecai is raised to a new position of authority in his place. And though it's not over yet, there there are still three chapters left. The edict is still out there against the Jews there is now some real concrete hope that God's people might be saved from this sentence of death after all. That's a story. We've gone pretty fast-paced through it, I'm sorry about that, but let's just reflect now on what we've seen and what we should see that God is saying to us through these events. Let's take Haman first of all. Look at his story. See, it's a, it's a classic story of pride going before a fall. And we need to be wary of 
the multiple warnings in the scriptures of the downfall of proud people. James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Proverbs 16, verse 5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. So this story serves as a strong warning to humble ourselves before God, to acknowledge his lordship. Haman's wife was right in the end. We can't fight God. Those who set themselves up against God and his people will not stand in the judgment that's coming. However, humble yourself and God will lift you up, just as he does for Mordecai. So it's certainly a warning against our pride. But there's more than a warning in this story because there are many things which ring bells for us in Esther chapter 7. There are echoes here of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What if you noticed any? Well, here's one. There will come a time, about 500 years after these events, when a man will die a gruesome death in public shame, suspended on a pole on display to a whole city. But there's a big difference between Haman's story and Jesus' story. See, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is not the just judgment of a man who gets what he deserves, an evil man like this in our story. Jesus isn't evil like Haman or like us. He's not dying as a fitting punishment for his pride and his sins. No, he's perfect, without sin, and utterly humble. He does not die for his own sins, but for the sins of his enemies. Perfect, sinless Jesus dies for our pride and our stand against God as an enemy. Jesus dies for our attempts to remove God from our lives, to take his rule. Jesus suffers the wrath of the King of Heaven for us, in our place. And the King of Heaven's fury is appeased by his death, so that we might be spared. Jesus dies on public display in shame, so that we, his enemies, might become his people. Here's another similarity between this story and Jesus' story. Esther 5 to 8 shows us God's way of salvation. See, both here and at the crucifixion of Jesus, we see evil defeated by its own means. God flips things around. He uses the plots and the tools of the enemy to, against himself to bring about victory for his people. So look at what happened. Haman, this enemy of God and his people, he's allowed by God to rise to power and he feels tremendously secure in his position. And in his pride, he's able to create and enact a plan to get rid of his great adversary, Mordecai, and not just him, but all God's people too. And for a long time, it looks like it's going to work. It seems increasingly like the enemy's victory is secure. But then, just as 
just as his moment of victory is about to happen, the enemy's undone. And he's defeated by the very means that he sought to employ. See, isn't this the very same way that God defeats evil once and for all on the cross of his son? It seems there that the moment of the cross, that the evil has triumphed, that the enemies of God and his people have won. But there we see that God uses that greatest of evils to hoist Satan on his own petard. The very moment of Satan's greatest victory is turned into humiliating defeat. The very tool, the cross, that he would seek to use to destroy Jesus is the tool by which he and his schemes are ultimately destroyed. Colossians 2 verse 14 speaks like this. It tells us that by his death, Christ was cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, here's the great reversal that this story points to. Here's where all the stories of poetic justice point to. The story of Haman's downfall teaches us how God will defeat the enemies of his people. They're defeated in their moment of apparent triumph by the means that they sought to employ against him. In the strange providence of God, the lifting up of Christ on the cross is the ultimate defeat of Satan and of evil and of death itself. What a wonderful God we have, whose ways are so much higher than ours. Let's praise him as we pray together now. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for the story that we've seen and looked at this evening. Please help us to take it in, to think on it, to dwell on it over the next few days. But Lord God, we do thank you for how it points to your great victory over evil, that you turn the tables, that you win victory out of defeat, and no more so than at the cross of your Son, the Lord Jesus where his death meant life for us. Oh God, we thank you, we praise you, in his name. Amen.